I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. This podcast features discussions with economists from Ireland and abroad, and each week a different guest will go through the detail behind an economic argument. We have a very special first episode as I'm joined by Professor John Fitzgerald to discuss Ireland's economic history. We discuss the settlement of Ireland's divorce bill, the development of Ireland's economy in the 60s and 70s, and then we wrap up by flexing John's macro muscles on some recent macroeconomic issues. We go through Ireland's corporate tax rate and the housing crisis. Today on this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. So you have a wealth of experience in terms of Irish economics, so I thought it would be interesting to begin this first episode looking at maybe the history of Irish economics going back to the foundation of the state. So you have a very interesting paper looking at Ireland's divorce bill, and maybe if I could just get the setup correct, when I read your paper, it, it felt like when the treaty was signed, there was a lot of things left open-ended. So, for example, there was a border set, but it was, it was temporary. And also, how much of the national debt of the United Kingdom would be apportioned to, to the Irish Free State. And then the Boundary Commission was set up in 1925, which had representatives from Ireland, Northern Ireland and Great Britain, to try and finalise the boundary. But somewhere along the line, the issue of the portion of the national debt came into play. So how exactly did these two things come together? All right, well, in the treaty negotiations in December um, 1921, um, obviously they weren't, neither side was worrying too much about the economy. It was all politics and ending violence and so on. Um, but Ireland agreed to accept a share of the UK national debt the share to be determined at a future date. Nobody paid much attention to it. And actually, I couldn't find any files in the Department of Finance uh, subsequently on this. So it was a very large liability. It was potentially 80% of GDP. So this was a huge ask. Um, The Boundary Commission um, was set up, um, and then in 1925, um, uh, a a, a, a leak appeared which suggested they were actually going to give some of the Republic to Northern Ireland rather than the other way around. There was consternation in Dublin, and the Taoiseach and the vice vice president of the Executive Council, that's uh, the equivalent of Taunish today, Kevin O'Higgins, went hot foot to London. And there were days of meetings with, first of all, with the Prime Minister, 
and secondly with the Chancellor of the Exchequer um, a- about um, redrawing the border and uh, the first thing the government wanted to do was to actually forget the commission and redraw it in Ireland's favour and uh, the British said no, Craig says no so that wasn't on and then Kevin O'Higgins was very intent on protecting the interests of Catholics in Northern Ireland who were being seriously discriminated against and there was violence and so on but they hadn't planned for this so they didn't have a file on it so uh, Basically, the British said, well, what do you want? And they said, well, maybe we'd like PR, maybe... And the, Now, Craig, um, the, uh, British, the Northern Ireland Prime Minister, was in the background and at some of the meetings. And the reports say uh, Craig and Kevin O'Higgins left the room to have a bilateral meeting. And when they came back, the report says that Craig says the Irish will be interested in a deal on the debt. And it looks to me as if Craig was under pressure to do something to protect Catholics in Northern Ireland. But the Irish government hadn't worked out exactly what. And he threw in this red herring. And immediately, the next day, the meeting moved from Chequers to or the, or the Prime Minister's office to to um, the Chancellor Exchequer, who was Churchill, to the Treasury in London. And from there on, that's where the negotiations took place. And... In the end, the British, first of all, said, well, we want our share of the debt. We, we owe a lot of money ourselves. And the first day, uh, that, and at the end of the first day, the report says the Irish delegation left the room. And it then goes on to say, Lord Birkenhead, who was Secretary of State for India, but was at the negotiations, said the Irish can't afford to pay. Now, I don't know whether the Irish ever heard that that's what he said. Yeah. The next day... Churchill said, well, what do you really want? And Churchill went off with O'Higgins and met uh, 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 outside the main meeting, came back and said, we have a deal, five million. Um, uh, just, they wrote down 155 to five. To, it was a tiny fraction. So uh, Ireland ended up with uh, a, a tiny fraction of the debt and the borders dead unchanged. So it was a huge economic success. Uh, for the government, but they failed in their attempt to protect Catholics in Northern Ireland. They failed in their protect, uh, attempt to, to redraw the border. So Craig was the person who suggested the, the debt issue. So it seemed like it was no cost to him, really. To, to, to... I, I suspect, now, I can't find papers on it, but I suspect he was under pressure. That Churchill, actually Churchill, it says that Churchill said that the B-specials were costing a bomb and Northern Ireland wasn't paying towards the, the exchequer what they were meant to. So... They, they were probably saying, you've got to give them something. And Craig didn't want to give anything, not an inch. Yeah. And the way of doing that was throwing the red herring. The Irish want to deal in the debt. The Irish do a deal in the debt and it lets him off the hook. So if Ireland had been numbered with this debt burden, where would we have been in terms of our development for the next few years after that? Well, yeah, yeah, but it, it would have been a huge burden on the economy, uh, a debt, uh, and it's not like interest rates today where they're zero. Interest rates have been four or five percent, and because the risks which it would involve, the interest rates might, the interest premium um, for Irish debt might even be higher. So, you could, if if an interest rate, if it's eighty percent of GDP, and the interest rate was five percent, that would be four percentage points a year uh, of GDP that would have to be paid in interest abroad which wasn't so that is a massive injection well it would it's not an injection because Ireland wasn't paying it but it's avoidance of a massive uh, amount that would have been taken out of the economy following on from that period then we had 
an era of protectionism in terms of Ireland's economy. I suppose that started with the Anglo-Irish trade war. Well, the world deglobalized very rapidly from 1929 onwards. So the putting up trade barriers, um, that was probably kind of inevitable, and it isn't necessarily because of the economic war. And uh, the economic war that basically the Irish government collected the the uh, uh, interest that um, farmers paid when they for their, the money which was used to buy out their farms, yeah. they paid it to the Irish government, who then paid to the British and. De Valera said, we're not paying it any longer yeah. uh, in 1932. And that was 2 2.5% of GDP. It was a lot of money. And suddenly, the Department of Finance, um, while not changing their deficit, were able to spend. So the, it gave De Valera a substantial injection in 32-33. So, so De Valera, he had a difference of opinion. He saw it as public debt, but the British saw it as private debt. Well, well, no, it was the other way around. Uh, that it, was, it had been agreed between the two governments, but it had not been legislated for. Right. And it is interesting in the, the minutes of the cabinet that, are the, that the De Valera said, right, the five million, which was agreed in 1925, the residual debt, that was enacted uh, that liability as in an act of, of the Iraqis and of West, Westminster in December 1925. So he said, "We owe that money, and we should continue to pay it." But the land annuities, he said, that was an agreement between the two governments and it was not legislated for, so we're not accepting it. And the British said that was a default. Right. Um, um, and that's, so that's the origins of the row. And it's interesting, from 1932 through to 1938, the finance accounts, that's the, the accounts each year the Department of Finance produces, showed the, the, the non-paid uh, land annuities as an accruing liability, a potential liability of the state. They acknowledged that it was potentially liable, mm-hmm. and which was kind of interesting given the government said we don't owe it, but finance said this is a potential liability. And then a deal was done in 1938 which was very generous to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, Ireland made a once-off payment of £10 million, which um, uh, was uh, a really... De Valera got a great deal and actually the history of the Department of Finance by Roman Fanning shows that one of the factors was that when the Department of Finance was set up in 1922 that four or five civil servants were sent over from London to help set it up and they went native and uh, what seems to have happened was that they they were still had their pals in the Treasury in London and they basically went over and in some gentleman's club in London met their pals and said, look, could you see us right? And the <laughs> Treasury, who would normally be lo- out for the last last shilling from the Irish, yeah. actually did a very generous settlement um, because it was their boys in Dublin they were seeing right. They, that's what the story which Ronan Fanning tells, right. which is rather interesting. Especially There's, nowadays where we see that this sort of diplomacy will go a long way with breaks and negotiations yeah. and the like. I, I, and also, I, I, when I joined the Department of Finance in the 1970s, 1972, that when you sent a memorandum for government, you had to send 32 copies to the Department of the Taoiseach, or 33 copies, one for each minister, one for for um, each secretary of the government department. And there was one over which went to the basement. Right. And uh, in the mid-70s, they checked, why are we collecting this additional copy? And it turned out that up to 1932, if a memorandum for government involved financial transactions, they sent it to the Treasury for their OBS in London. Right. They were still getting advice. But when de Valera came in in 32, 
it wasn't sent to him. But like good civil servants, they said governments may change and they might change their mind. So for, for the subsequent 40 years, there were copies going to the, to the basement. 1972 or 73, they said, no, we're never going to send it to the <laughs> Okay, that's really interesting. So leading on from that period then, we had, we had an extension of sort of protectionist policies where... Agriculture suffered very severely from because we produced a massive surplus yes. of... Uh, agricultural produce which were exporting the obvious market was Britain everything else was closed so that farmers did very badly now of course during the second world war things were rather different British were happy to take whatever we could sell them Um, but uh, when you come back in the post second world war period um, you have this very high tariffs which began in 1932 and continue on so that you couldn't buy a shoelace from abroad. Yeah. You couldn't buy a peach from abroad. So there are no peaches, fresh peaches on sale. The first one I had, I think, when I was 17. Because, right. uh, the, so very high tariff walls up to the end of the 1950s when they began to take them, take them down. Okay, so to think that through a bit more, trying to get a picture of what life was like back then, it would have been very expensive to produce items, very expensive cost of living as a result industry wouldn't have developed as well as, as, as it should have. Take, for example, cars. In 1972, there were trade statistics. There were cars, FBU and CKD, two different categories. And it stood for fully built up and completely knocked down. And uh, 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 up to the end of the 50s, and this continued until the 1970s for most cars, they, had, they were built in Britain, but generally... You couldn't bring cars in from outside the Commonwealth, so there were generally British cars. There were some continental, but very few. They had to be built, then taken to pieces, then sent to Dublin, and then put the pieces put together again. Now, there are badly built British cars in the first place, and when you take them apart and put them together again, they get even worse. And, of course, it's exceptionally expensive. So that by 1972, some were coming in fully built up, but they were still coming in CKD, completely knocked down, okay. which were then reassembled. Now, under EU rules, of course, that went. So that, of course, made cars very expensive and poor quality in Ireland. So that's just an example of what the restrictions on trade did for you. OK, so these sort of economic decisions at that time, then the Department of Finance would have been a very different beast. How, how were these decisions made? Finance would have been very conservative up to... The mid 1950s, and then Whitaker became secretary, and he rapidly realised that this was that the rest of Europe had woken up from the nightmare of the Second World War and adopted free trade, and it was growing very rapidly in the 50s, and we were going nowhere, yeah. so we were lagging way behind. And Whitaker said, "We have to change." Now he had to first of all convince he convinced his minister Sean Lamas readily enough, mm-hmm. but uh, until Lamas became Taoiseach. Um, actually making big changes. De Valera really lived in the old world of of restrictions on trade. So you see a very proactive work under uh, Whitaker from the late 50s onwards with the taking down the barriers to trade, the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement of 1965, which came into effect in 1966, um, uh, uh, moving towards and uh, an, a, a, an interest at an early stage in uh, joining the EU. Now, when Britain was turned down in the mid-60s by de Gaulle, our application uh, fell by uh, defaulted. Yeah. But so that you have a complete change in outlook and finance in 57, 58. And 
it takes a long time before the results of that play out. And in terms of the type of outlook, it would be more advising economic policy in terms of government decisions, in terms of uh, doing research behind what would be the, the right decisions to make. Um, Joe Lee, in his history of the day, history of Ireland between 1912 and 1985, is very critical of the economics profession in Ireland in the 50s and 60s, that they had nothing to contribute. And one of the reasons the ESRI was set up by Whitaker was he wanted independent economic advice and he wanted independent of finance so it would tell finance unpopular things. So he sought Ford Foundation funding for it. Now, Mm. he told me that in order to get it, he heard the guy from the Ford Foundation serve mass in St. Patrick's in New New York um, at 10 every morning. So Whitaker said he went to mass and prayed hard and (laughs) had coffee with the man afterwards and got the money for the ESRI and so it was set up to establish its independence. So the universities like there were very few Loudon Ryan of Trinity was the exception and he worked well with with Whitaker and worked in the second programme in finance on it but with the exception of, of Ryan there was very little economic advice from outside so Whitaker was trying to generate it inside and actually some of the files I put away in 1972 when I joined the department were about getting British academics to come to Ireland and tell you how to do things. By 1970 the world had changed that Irish students who'd gone abroad like Brendan Walsh, Dermot McAleese, Des Norton and come back to Ireland. They'd done PhDs in the US. There was a transformation in the 70s. So there was poor policy making poor economic advice and very poor outcomes um, all going together. And then you see over a 20-year period uh, leading up to from 10 years up to EU membership and then the following 10 years, a transformation. And you said there was a lot of people going to the States and abroad. I know the ESRI had a project to help fund these sort of PhDs. Was that... Well, originally it was actually Whittaker. Um, I, I, my first boss in Department of Finance, Cahill Gavner, had been paid his salary and fees and cost to go and do a PhD in University of Chicago. Paddy Tien, who went on to be secretary of the Department of Taoiseach, was paid to go to University of Tilburg. So, and um, I had a close friend and colleague who was an American PhD from in econometrics who was brought in by Whitaker in 69. So first of all, he was trying to build up a cadre and there was a grade of economists where a lot of my economics class and the economics class the year afterwards had been paid to go to college, do economics and then come back to finance afterwards. So there was a gearing up, um, the SRI was part of it, recruiting economists into into the Department of Finance was part of it and then a transformation in the universities in Trinity and UCD from the late 60s onwards. Just going back to Whitaker then himself, he seems to have a lot of foresight when it came to Irish economics at that time and I saw a description of him as being uh, quite capable, quite able but also quite pleasant and, and easy to deal with. Would that have been key to getting these things established? I first met him um, in the 50s as a child one of my best friends in school was one of his sons and I spent an awful lot of time in his house with him and his wife he taught me how to play table tennis um, I learned to play bridge uh, in the, uh, 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 like he, he was fun as a father uh, like uh, while he was doing all these great things sort of uh, 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 he, he, I, I had, didn't have an idea as a great of a, a great person changing Ireland he was David Whittaker's father and he was good fun uh, 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 so his role also 
um, and it came it was very important in 1969 mm-hmm. that no government department was responsible for Northern Ireland because it was meant to be part of Ireland, so it couldn't be dealt with by external affairs. So, um, and Whitaker was the person who actually brought together Lynch and O'Neill. Um, he'd met O'Neill, who was the Prime Minister in Northern Ireland, at an IMF meeting. And the meeting was arranged. And I remember 1965, I went to school and I went home at lunchtime and heard in the news that Whitaker had um, gone with Lamas to meet O'Neill, which was a huge change. Yeah. Went back and David didn't know where his father had gone. So he hadn't heard the news. So I was able to tell him, well, your father has made big news today. Um, and then, uh, so he advised Lamas um, and then Whitaker, uh, Lynch on Northern Ireland. And when the crisis broke in August 69, and there were threats to should Ireland send the army and invade Northern Ireland, um, Lynch, there wasn't really any civil servants to advise him because nobody was responsible for Northern Ireland. So he rang and sought Whitaker, who was holidaying in the west of Ireland. And Whitaker, the guard cycled out to him and said, could you come into the guard of the station? Tisha wants to talk to you. Right. And he went in and said, Tisha, keep your cool. You're quite right. Um, uh, don't get it. Yeah. You, you can't go down the route of uh, of protecting Northern Ireland directly. Uh, so, he, so he played a big role, even uh, not just in the economics, but as a, a sound advisor of of government, okay. he, he was he, he, at that stage. He was governor of the central bank. He was no longer secretary of finance. So you started in finance in nineteen seventy two. That would have been after Whitaker's tenure. There, would you have seen remnants of, of his legacy? Department of Finance. I really enjoyed it. I learned most of my economics in the department. It was a great place to work in the seventies. Um, I worked with really good people. One of the things was you always criticise your boss and say, ah, yeah. oh, sort of the assistant secretary, he's useless or whatever, always him, not her. Um, uh, 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 but everybody spoke well of Whitaker. Everybody respected him and said he was great. So in a pretty critical environment to get these accolades from the people who'd worked with him, he must have been pretty good. Well, that, that, that is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate compliment. And you could see, like, you could see his, his, his footprint Still, in terms of the people, the economics, recruitment of economists, the economic service, which was the section I was in, uh, that uh, he still, uh, his legacy lived on in the 70s. Okay. So when you were working in, in finance, was your role economic forecasting at that stage? I began off in forecasting and then after three or four years, I became kind of the the, the economics fire brigade. Okay. Um, well, I did uh, develop the first model of the economy for the department in 1975, uh, but anything else that came in and there was an economic question sent for Fitzgerald, oh, which right. was great training because I hadn't, I, my, I, I, I hadn't a, a, a master's in economics, I'd just be in economics, I'd done a master's in, in history, yeah. uh, economic history. Um, so you're being asked all these interesting questions all the time yeah. and you then go and talk to your colleagues and debate it and then write up what your conclusions okay, were. Okay, so I'm trying to think of some of the crisis that would have happened in the 70s, oil crisis, I suppose. Yeah, the oil crisis, um, my boss was very, would produce the reports on the, uh, on, on that. Um, it, 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 a certain amount of it was on agricultural issues and then there was, um, should we spend more money on on board Folger and things like that? It, 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 it would be from... 
macroeconomics to microeconomics, all of human life was there. Right. Uh, uh, so it, it was stimulating. And when you're working with other good people, you're asked good questions. And if you don't come up with a good answer, you're in trouble. It's, it's very stimulating. So one question I think people my age especially would be interested in hearing is, how did you solve problems back in those days? We had... First of all, they just got calculators in, um, electronic calculators in, in 1971, I think, when, so we had that in 1972. I first used the computer in the engineering department in UCD, which was in 1975, which was right beside the department. It was in what is now the Thesics department. So I used to go in there and use, it was called a programming language, APL, and I had to, yeah, couldn't save the model, so I had to type in the model um, <laughs> line by line into the computer and then solve the model, um, uh, invert the matrix and so on. It was pretty primitive, but we were using, and then 75, 76, I think we got our first computer terminal linked to the Government Computer Centre in, in Kilmainham okay. and getting the modem. Um, uh, like the mo- we had all the equipment and they said, oh, Post and Telegraphs have to connect it up. When will they do it? It'll take a month. So there was a very bright clerical officer who said to me, find me another one. And there was one in Nesk. So he went down to Nesk and took it apart and then came back to finance, connected us up. So we were up and running. But I had to tell the army who guarded the building not to let Post and Telegraphs in unless they told me. So I had to, when they arrived a month later, I had to disassemble everything right. so they could put it together again otherwise there would have been a strike so 76 was the first computer terminal in finance to, okay. to run our model and then it developed from there uh, in the late 70s the computer room we had a little very small room it still had bulletproof screens on the room left over from the civil war days oh, really? uh, but uh, they've since been removed I've been in the room since okay very good and so Ron with this time then that's when Hermes was well, uh, no it, there was this, this very small model, it was called Cerberus, actually, the three-headed dog guarding Hades. Um, uh, and then we, in working with a colleague, John Bradley, in the Central Bank, we developed a model called Model 80. And we published a paper in 1982 using that, which was used for analysis. We had to write the program, John Bradley and myself and Fortran. Then we moved on to uh, Hermes would be the mid to late 80s. It was part of a European project to have Hermes models for every economy. We produced ours and the French produced theirs, the Belgians produced theirs, but the Germans never produced theirs. So you can't have a model of Europe without Germany. So it failed. But actually... Up, up to 10 years ago, or eight years ago, both ADSRI and the Belgians were still using an updated version of Hermes. So it lasted 20, 20 25 years, as, and now it's been replaced by the ESRI's model Cosmo, which is used by Finance and the Central Bank, which would be a, a, a very similar in structure to Hermes. Going back to maybe the early days of, of the Department of Finance model in Hermes, I remember you told a story before in the SRI that you used to have to use punch cards. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, well uh, originally in the, in the early, in the, in the 80s, you, you punched cards and then the punch cards were taken out to Kilmainham to the computer centre on the back of a motorbike. And it was said that um, the messenger who took it out one day, the box fell. And of course, it's just 
punch cards so you don't know the order so that was the end you had to go back and do another few hundred cards to reprogram it so it was um, the SRI uh, used a different method they had their own internal computing um, but it wasn't suitable for for modelling purposes so it all came together sort of computing uh, we were still using the mainframe up to the late 80s um, that it only ported onto a PC in the early 90s. I remember actually run, it, 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 I had an 80486 computer at home, which would be early PC, and I could run the model for the first time on an 80486 computer. And it, the, it took, uh, in the time it took to solve the model, I could iron a shirt. <laughs> right. But now it's just in a split second, so no more earning of shirts. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely a good use of time. Um, okay, well, maybe we could go back then to more general Irish economy and Ireland's trajectory. And one thing that I suppose is key to Ireland's development is the issue of corporate taxation and, and the corporate tax rate. And I suppose it's, it's a very topical discussion at the moment because there's debates at an international level as to what the appropriate rate is. But the foundations of Ireland's low corporate tax is going back to pre-EU days. Maybe it goes back to 56, I think, the finance bill um, introduced then by the then coalition government. And it was zero corporation tax on uh, profits earned from exporting. And it evolved over time under pressure from the EU to where it is today. Um, for me, I think that it, it, it's a secondary issue. Yeah. The two things which moved Ireland from being 60% of the EU average to 110 or 120% of the EU average, sort of doubling the relative standard of living, was the freeing of trade and EU membership. Yeah. member of the single market and the other thing was investment in education and the investment in education report in 965 which I think was crucial and the subsequent the way we implemented that subsequently the corporation tax regime wouldn't have had a it didn't have a huge impact um, until you were part of the EU so being part of the EU so you served a, a, an EU market that was essential so that without that the corporation tax wouldn't have been effective and um, yes, it was effective and important in the 80s and 90s in terms of attracting firms mm -hmm. and jobs. But now the research evidence suggests that actually it has no or very limited impact, direct impact on employment. It brings additional tax revenue yeah. because actually German and French and British firms don't make big use of it. Um, if they're here, they're here because they want skilled labour and the conditions to produce in Ireland. American firms um, can separate their profits and locate them anywhere. And at the moment, they're locating them in Ireland. So I think that, um, and there's an interesting debate on this between Cormac O'Grada um, of UCD and Frank Barry now of Trinity in the quarterly economic commentary, the SRI quarterly economic commentary in 19, uh, 2002, I think two articles, I'm on Cormac O'Grother's side where he says it's more education and freeing of trade um, and Frank Barry puts a lot more emphasis on corporation tax. I'm probably too much. I'm more on Cormac's side on this one. We were way behind the rest of Northern Europe in terms of education. The rest of Northern Europe woke up from the Second World War nightmare and said, education's where it's at. And I'm, from Stalinist uh, Russia 
through Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Germany, Netherlands, Scandinavia, um, England, uh, all invest in education. We didn't. And I was the last uh, of the generation. Um, my parents had to pay fees for me to go to second level. Um, free education came in the year um, uh, I, I left school. Um, and then subsequent investment in third level education. So ha having come from very far behind, we upgraded the second level system in the 70s. And then since the 80s, we've moved to be top of the class in terms of participation in third level education. Northern, and the way the education system, in England, they had the education, secondary education in the 50s began off with uh, what was called the 11 plus, that you, you fail 70% of the kids and 30% go on to grammar school and a lot of them to university. 70% are failures, they go to secondary modern schools. Now, England by the 60s discovered actually this is neither fair nor efficient to fail 70% of kids. Mm -hmm. Ireland did not go down that model more by accident probably than by design, <coughs> we have mixed ability schools. So this free second level, uh, so kids of all abilities go to all schools. Um, that's the principle. And it's, it largely works like that. In the north, they still have the old English model mm -hmm. where they fail 70% of kids. Now, they got rid of the 11 plus, but they still fail 70% of kids and send them to secondary schools. And the research done by Fanny Barua shows that 40% of boys from a disadvantaged background will not complete high school education, 30% yeah. of Catholic boys from similar backgrounds. So it's very discriminatory on basis of class, background, and exceptionally wasteful. Because, of course, if you don't have a good secondary education, at least you're not going to get any way passable job. So I think the education, the, the transformation of the educational system here is probably as important as EU membership and I think it is underestimated in how in the success of that in transforming the economy. Absolutely and, and we're moving towards service-based uh, economy where skills have a high value as opposed to maybe manufacturing. I think a, a key example of that would be Dell factory which is more a production line as opposed to now we have Googles and Facebooks which are about adding value in terms of of the service that you can offer. So in that context it's the skill level that we have. It's perhaps maybe we're an attractive place for people to come in from other places. And this gives us a competitive advantage when it comes to uh, attracting the multinationals. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really important. And it's not just Irish people. It's the fact that foreigners no, like I, living here, yeah. and, uh, especially people who are highly skilled. And that has been very important in, in transforming the economy. It's interesting talking to two um, managers of really big multinationals with mu pl matched plants in Ireland and Singapore around the world and they both said that um, Irish people are good at solving problems whatever about our educational system and compared to Singapore that the productivity in matched plants in Ireland and Singapore this would have been a decade ago would be very similar but in Singapore um, as long as the plant worked and nothing went wrong they were more productive than in Ireland. But in Ireland, if anything went wrong, that's when we really scored. And that basically the 
CEO of the company said he almost had to make the machines break down. Irish people got bored. They wanted a challenge. And that's what they respond to. Don't know uh, what part of the culture or part of the educational system, but we're good. uh, We get bored, but we want problems to solve. I have a friend who always says that uh, that person comes from a dairy farming background because when you grow up on a dairy farm, if something goes wrong, you have to fix it. (laughs) maybe, Maybe that's the cultural aspect of it. So skip on now to the final section of my conversation with John. And having discussed a lot of the historical economic issues, we wanted to bring it right up to date and discuss something that's relevant for this decade, and that is the housing crisis. So we began our conversation by addressing the first question that everyone seems to ask, why is this crisis different to the last? In both cases, we needed a lot of houses. Now, we overdid it, um, producing 90,000 houses just before the bust, um, and they weren't going to be occupied um, uh, at the time. Now, they're all occupied subsequently because we the population is growing all the time, and we need a lot of houses um, or apartments or whatever. This time round, um, the, 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 in the pre-crisis period, um, basically the banks handed out any quantity of money to developers to build and people to buy. Um, this time round, the central bank has kept a lid on it. So um, it has meant that you that uh, a, a, any house that is built is occupied. Um, uh, and it, it, But we do need a lot more houses. And research done by the ESRI shows that in the next decade, the financial system as it stands may not be able to finance. Like it, The problem in, has been to get people to build 30,000 houses or or more a year. Supply has been very slow to ramp up. But we're ramping up the supply. There are a load of people who want to be housed. But will the financial system be able to fund? uh, They will until the early 2020s. But after that, the banks may not be able to. And it may require moving to a more rental model where... Um, foreign investors are prepared to invest that people hate vulture funds but actually um, if we're to house ourselves we need somebody else to share the risk on the housing in the future So this is something that I wanted to bring up Um, definitely I can see in the long term that there's a need for more houses and there's a strong economic argument in that case but in the short term when we have a constrained housing stock and we have a lot more people facing into long-term rentals. Is there a social need for rent control, some sort of fixity of tenure? In my experience, I'm in Germany at the moment, and my rental agreement goes on until three years, I think it is, and longer if, if, if I so desire, which is very different to the Irish context where the landlord, if the landlord needs to house back, well then, y- you need to give it up. Uh, the, the, the German and Irish cases are completely different from because of demographics. In Germany, the number of people dying each year is 80% of the number of 25-year-olds. In Ireland, it's 50-60%. So in Germany, um, if you're 25 and you need a house, well, somebody's going to die and vacate somewhere. In Ireland, not enough people are dying. Um, So you need to build an awful lot more. So, So in Germany, you're in a kind of stable equilibrium where the housing stock is broadly what's needed. So there isn't the pressure all the time, but actually... Um, there's pressure because there are people out there all the time in Ireland who are not housed or want better housing who are putting on the pressure. So that makes us different. 
I think actually the restrictions on the rental market to try and move it more towards Germany has made things much worse for, right. for people because rents, house house prices have slowed down. They're stable. But rents have gone way up. And the and you normally when price goes up, you'd expect supply to go up. Sure. Supply of rental accommodation has gone down because... Um, other restrictions. If you, you if you can't raise the rent, you're better selling it to somebody who will live in it. Yeah. They can get you'd get a better price out of a better return out of it. So actually, it's driving. I've been talking to a lot of people who are renting, in particular people who are, are working abroad, yeah. um, who are, want to come back to Ireland, who own somewhere, and instead of leaving it vacant when they go away, they rent it. But the complications on this. Um, um, and the restrictions um, mean that actually they may be better off leaving the house vacant or selling and not bu- uh, and buying when they return. So it's actually driving p- people out of the rental market. So supply has gone down, and which with demand going up, rents have gone through the roof. So I think that the this move to try and restrict rents. Um, is is very problematic under current circumstances. So, so I wouldn't, yeah, I, I would definitely agree in the sense of restricting the rent, but maybe perhaps having long-term lease, a long-term security. The, 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 where you will get security is if um, landlords are free to vary the rent. Yeah. And if you have professional landlords, what are called vulture funds, mm. Where you have a problem with is individuals who are renting one house in particular where they're out of the country. Well, naturally, they have a right to return or want to return to their house and not be homeless when they actually own somewhere. So one-off rent, so you actually need much more institutional investors. But if you're driving out the institutional investors because they will only invest if they can vary the rent. Um, For somebody who's abroad... They're less concerned about varying the rent. They're more re- concerned about actually getting getting back in. But the tenure of somebody, if you're renting from somebody who's abroad, you're insecure. So if you want security of tenure, you need institutional investors. And if you want institutional investors, then you probably need to look at the restrictions on, on the rental market. Okay, so I suppose the next question then is, we, we need greater housing stock in the long run. How do we get there? Um, and one thing that's been talked about a lot is a land tax, which can help incentivize greater use of vacant land. And I wonder how effective that would be. Uh, to uh, land tax, the, if you look at the cost of accommodation, a huge amount of it is the price of the land. Mm-hmm. So tackling that, and there was a Kenny report in the 1970s uh, by a high court judge which said that uh, you could um, basically... Uh, agricultural land should be bought for the price of agricultural land and the development gain of building houses on it should accrue to the state not to 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 to, to the landowner they've never done anything about that so there are areas it's the supply side and also there are restrictions there yeah. building restrictions um um one of the i heard was in an apartment block um they would not allow the underground car park to project significantly above ground yeah. say 
a metre or two metres above ground, so there'd be kind of a, uh, you go up some steps into, or a ramp up in, into the entrance. They have to be completely sunk. But doing that, you have to put in very complicated air conditioning mm-hmm. for fire safety regulations in a garage, mm-hmm. which you don't have to if it projects above ground. Mm-hmm. And that adds 20,000 to the cost of an apartment. Uh, So there are things like this they need to look at Mm. um, in terms of regulation. Now, one of the lessons, if you look back at the last 60 years of Irish economic history, in the late 60s, my wife um, sat down on O'Connell Street with Dublin Housing Action Committee protesting about the shortage of housing. It took about a decade for the supply response. Again, in the 90s, um, there was a shortage of accommodation. Um, it was really only in the mid-2000s that was sorted out. So supply response is very slow, and it's been even slower this time. Um, now, it happens, but I think not enough attention was played to the supply side. And also, it was clear from 2013 onwards we're going to need a load of houses. But people were so depressed about the economy, they couldn't see that the economy was recovering. Yeah. They could, And so the idea that you actually needed to take action then about housing. So they waited dawdled around for two or three years before they said, actually, it is true the Irish economy is recovering. We should do something. If they'd only listened to the SRI back in 2013 um, and taken action then, things would be better today. So one final issue then that, that people talk about a lot is this whole issue of Airbnb. And I find it quite interesting in that it has provided a link between the, the, the rental market, or well, housing market, but rental, I suppose, especially, and then the market for hotels. So... We have a situation where people are talking about, about banning Airbnb to free up houses, but this, in the short term, that might help. But in the long term, if people are thinking about, well, do I build an apartment block or do I build a hotel block? Well, if there's banning on Airbnb, there's going to be higher demand for hotels, and then that's going to uh, create. In, in the short run, I'm being, I, I'm not certain what the right answer is. I have become more sympathetic to some restrictions on it but in the long run I think there should be no restrictions um, and because it, 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 as you say people will stay in hotels and so more hotels will be built like the cost of a hotel room in Dublin um, is 150 euros a night um, uh, in Paris on Saturday and Sunday I paid 89 euros a night in it for a very good room in a very good part of Paris. Mm. Why? Um, because there's this huge demand. And um, I think that making, in the long run, Airbnb allows you to make better use of your accommodation. But at the moment, um, if people are just buying up the few rental properties to make rent Airbnb, I think that that may be a problem. Now, it may sort itself out with a large increase in student accommodation, which is suitable for... It's in between Airbnb and and hotels. Yeah. Okay. Okay, John, well, thanks very much. I was looking forward to this conversation as, uh, (laughs) you know, it it definitely lived up to expectations, so... So there you have it, the first episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Thanks for sticking it out till the end. My sincere thanks to John Fitzgerald for joining me and it was great to hear the development of the Irish economy from his perspective. If you enjoyed it, please give the podcast a review or rating on iTunes. Thanks very much and all the best.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.